happy Halloween and welcome to a Double Bill Drive-In special of cinema. This episode I had the pleasure to interview Tony Ash, director and writer of the uh, Trick or Treat Picture Show that you can find on Amazon Prime right now. And uh, this episode is double billed with uh, my episode 20 on Halloween 3 and why that film deserves a second look. But we're not talking about that one in this episode. We are talking about filmmaker Tony Ash. And uh, Tony sent me a screener of his film, The Trick or Treat Picture Show, asking if I would review it. And agreeing to do so, I also invited him on the show because he's a filmmaker out there in the trenches and he's fighting the fight. That's what cinema is all about. The fight against cynicism and not just recognizing it. Tony gives us a great background on his upbringing, his delve into horror, and where he hopes to end up next. His film is an anthology, and and while I could say more, I, I think our interview lays out everything you need to know. So have a listen, light a candle, throw out that shitty candy corn, and enjoy this real treat interview with Tony Ash. Sure, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it a ton. Um, yeah, the, the film it's, that I've just released, it's called The Trick or Treat Picture Show. Uh, it's my first feature film. Um, and and it's, it's kind of um, an opportunity for me to utilize the last three or four shorts that I had completed. So, you know, I had these three shorts that I didn't really know what to do with. Some played at festivals in the UK and here. Um, but I was kind of finding that shorts didn't have... They didn't have the um, the kind of energetic explosiveness of a feature. I found that shorts kind of have this weird half-life that you would screen it at a festival or something, and then that would sort of be that. Like nobody would ever, you know, you wouldn't hear too much about a short. Whereas if, if you had a feature, you could reach out to the magazines and you could reach out to um, the horror podcasters, et cetera. So I took the last three shorts that I had done. Um, one was at a log cabin, two were here uh, in Long Island. And so what I did is I kind of took some um, advertisements that were in the public domain that were free for commercial use. And I really kind of tapped into my childhood and remembered what it was like being a kid in the 80s and your parents would take you to a drive-in movie because there was like a hurricane and the lights were out or, you know, whatever it was. And then Halloween night, you would watch these weird late night TV shows on public, (laughs) you know, so... That's that's kind of what I decided. And, and just to be totally frank with you, I didn't have the runtime or the finances to go and shoot two or three more movies the way I wanted to. So really, I have an hour and 20 minutes of um, it's 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 a preview of a short film, two narrative shorts and then two supernatural documentaries that I shot within the last year or so. Um, cut in with these cool kind of segments, which are sort of an homage to public access. Uh, as far as my inspiration, I mean, I, I remember, uh, I remember being a kid and lying on the floor. I had to be what eleven. And if, do you remember the USA Network? But I remember lying on the floor, and I and there was this man with a white mask, and he was chasing this woman, and I was so captivated. And they were in front of a hospital. I just remember being a kid and thinking, "What the hell is that?" And I said to my father, "Dad, what is that?" And he said, "That's like the Jason of the '80s." Of the 70s, excuse me. He said, that's like the Jason of the 70s. And I was just like, but but it was much more serious than Jason. You know what I mean? Yes. There, there was an urgency and he was more ominous and it took itself more seriously. And it was that scene in Halloween 2 where Jamie Lee Curtis is running um, and he appears in the red light. 
and he's walking past the fence. And just the look of urgency on her face, it, it just immediately got you. I mean, even as 11 or 12, I, I, just, I couldn't take my eyes off of what was happening. And I can honestly say in that moment, I knew that I was going to make horror films. There was something about her urgency. And then even the music was urgent and Dr. Loomis was urgent, yet it was serious. And the music had a tempo to it and it was almost kind of like a montage. Um, everything that I sort of do as a filmmaker, I could always trace back to that particular scene. You had not seen Carpenter's original. No, and I, I mean, I'm born in 84. So what is this, 94? Gotcha. And so then I'm, I'm 94, I'm lying on the carpet. And then a few, and then, I don't know, maybe two years later, I'm in the, I'm in the, I'm in Blockbuster, and I see this thing with a big pumpkin head on it. it. Says Halloween. I said, "What the hell is that?" And I'm like, "Oh, it makes sense. There's probably one before it." So I watched everything in reverse. Um, wow. I saw Halloween two first, but um, Halloween two gets knocked and it gets rocked. And I mean, like even what Blumhouse is doing, they got rid of it, which really pissed me off. But I, I get why they did. But to me. Just the hospital setting, the industrial reds and blues, the urgency of what's happening with her in the chase scenes. I don't know. I just, it's my all-time favorite, 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 favorite film. Did you love horror up to this point? I mean, did you, were you raised up on a diet of, of other horror in the way of uh, the universal monsters, uh, anything like that? I mean, even uh, big monster movies, Godzilla, I don't really count those as horror. But what else preceded your 1994 viewing of Halloween 2? Like literally nothing. I grew up in, um, I mean, I, my family's very like um, easygoing and they loved me. I, I could have gone into the circus and they would have supported it, but uh, <laughs> you know, nothing. Um, no, my, my, I come from, I'm like, I'm an Italian Catholic boy from Long Island. And if anything, my mom's definitely afraid of horror films and my dad gets very nervous with death and murder. And I mean, I don't love gore. I love suspense and I love cinema. Um, and so, no, I mean, really nothing preceded that. It really was from that point forward. Like, I remember on Easter, my grandma giving me, like, a VHS copy of Halloween 4. Like, that's how into it I got after that. You know, like, I, I was that weird kid with the Halloween 4 VHS in my Easter basket, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can definitely relate to that. Mm -hmm. So you, you go forward. Did you take any type of formal education for filmmaking? Uh, how did you start making movies to get into all of this? What, what kind of equipment did you use? I mean, I started with literally a silent Super 8 millimeter camera. Um, and cut with scissors and spliced with scotch tape. I have a feeling that was probably not the case for you. You had a little bit more advanced technology. So what did you start with and how did you get down the road and, and what led all the way up to the film that we're going to be discussing? Uh, I'm jealous that you actually got to cut film. It's something I want to do. Um, what happened? What, well, I went to Hofstra and then I studied um, speech communication and mass communication, film studies as a minor. But no, I never went to um, film school. I'm completely self-taught. Um, as a matter of fact, I think when you're a filmmaker, it's really important to be versed in something else also that can benefit your film. So I'm also a clinical psychotherapist. Um, wow. And I have a practice. And, and this is going to sound so lame and cheesy, but I don't care because it's the truth. Like, ever, like Halloween the Dr. Loomis character really like made me want to go study mental health and like 
you know, what makes people do these terrible things. And that character, like everything in my life right now, you can really take back to Halloween kind of traumas I've been through, through and overcame and survived. Like I think of Jamie Lee Curtis and my choice to work in mental health. When I started making films, the first film I made um, was in 2007. I don't even have a copy of it and that's okay because I don't want one. I was in a very dark place um, spiritually at the time and I was kind of angry at God and I made this very exorcist-y kind of film. And plus it didn't come out right. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I mean, I learned how to pull a crew together and get every, I mean, I shot a movie, I made a whole feature film, took nine months, but, um, it's just, it's, I was angry at God for some very personal reasons. And like, I'm, I'm so mended in my spirituality. And one of the things that I do want to talk about too, is, you know, I think there are two kinds of horror fans. There are horror fans who celebrate evil and darkness. And then there are horror fans who celebrate the spirit of survivorship and like the festive fun of autumn. Um, at this point, the only reason I'll make a horror film ever is to inspire people to survive and overcome. Same reason I'm a psychotherapist. You'll never see anything satanic in my movies. I'll never celebrate darkness. Um, my movies are always kind of about how light always beats darkness. You know, darkness is contingent on light. You can't have darkness unless light is not present. It's, it's a byproduct of light not being there. It's not real. You know, you can measure a light wave. You can measure how far it'll travel, its density, its luminosity. Darkness isn't real. It's just a product of light not being present. So if I can help more people kind of see the light um, in 2019 in a unique way, then cool, you know? It's interesting. That's, that's kind of the premise of the five evils at the end of Death House. Mm. Uh, speaking of exactly of that same thing, you cannot have good without evil and vice versa. So you, the, the one thing that comes out of all of this is, which I just had a discussion with Michelle Swope in my last interview from Dread Central, mm -hmm. and that is um, horror is, is, I believe, horror is personal. So what scares one does not scare another. And filmmakers often approach, you know, their their films, whether, whether it's horror or not, but we're going to use horror for this case, from a very personal standpoint. Mm -hmm. And you you can see, like, I, I always remember an interview uh, with uh, Spielberg when he was talking about how the, the backlash came to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And his response was, the film is not a very, very, it's not very high on his list of his favorite films of his own. And he said, the reason why is something you just basically said. And he said, I was in a very dark place. At that time, he was going through a nasty divorce. So was George Lucas at that time. Yeah. And um, it seemed to reflect up on the screen. Now, for me, I, I love Temple of Doom, uh, but it, it is probably the one that's most picked upon out of the series next to Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls. And um, But what you were saying about horror being personal, Michelle, in her interview, uh, felt that Nightmare on Elm Street was the scariest movie she had ever seen because we found out in the course of our talk that she had always had problems sleeping as a kid. Mm. And this tapped into that and, and triggered something. So uh, the dark place where you were and your your anger in, in spirituality obviously came through in your work. And uh, it's interesting that you have that, that you know you will, you will not make a movie where, uh, unless it, it's it's a journey really of, of good overcoming evil, which is very interesting. It's, it's a very interesting uh, code to stand by as a horror filmmaker. I won't... Um... I mean, and I don't mind, you know, talking about who I am. Is I mean, I'm a gay guy, and so as a Catholic, 
I think that you feel for a while that like God doesn't love you. And then you realize the separation between spirituality and religion. And what I came to realize, especially in my horror films, is that, you know, evangelicals and born again, God forgive me, they make me crazy. Um, <laughs> one of the things that they'll say is that, you know, horror films, all horror films are evil, right? And so it, it just dawned on me in kind of being a social scientist and studying different like psycho-spiritual outcomes, you can do evil in the name of God, you know? And so it's not, I think in life, it's the essence underneath what you're doing. There have been priests and pastors who have like, you know, sold their soul to the devil, quote unquote. So it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's, it's always the essence underneath it. Um, God's been like really good to me. And I really am. I'm like a deeply spiritual Catholic. That's the best way to say it. And God's protected me through a lot. You know, I partied a lot in my 20s and he kept me safe through a lot of crazy choices. And I overcame a lot as a kid. And so, I mean, you know, God's been good to me. And I just feel like I need his stamp on approval before I do anything. And I will never celebrate anything satanic in my films. You'll never see me do that. Ever, ever, ever. I mean, I'm not saying there won't be evil. There has to be evil. It's a horror movie. But it'll always be about how good can overcome that evil, you know? Look, at this point, in my, I also study successful people, you know, everyone from Rockefeller to Steve Jobs. And it's just clear. Um, they had a vision and they had a mission and they were never off their journey. They were always on it. And there was no such thing as failure ever, ever, ever. So for me to give in and to do something that goes against what I believe in would mean um, I was desperate for work. And that's just, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not even, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm not shit right now, but I will be. And, and my attitude will still be the same. You're never ego. There's no room for ego in my life. There never will be. You took this compendium of your shorts and everything. Tell us about your film, sure. um, how you did all of this. I'd like to know how you struggled with, with your budget. You don't have to, to tell us your budget. I, I'm ne I never ask a filmmaker to commit to telling us their budget. I, I'm just saying, what did you do to overcome the obstacles to, to get this done. I mean, what you did is really almost like you were just saying, it's it's also like a force of nature where you committed. You said, I'm I'm going forward. I'm, I'm going to get this done. And other people would have just rolled over. Other people would have been like, oh, it's too much money. I, I don't have this. I have a job. I can't do this. I hear so many excuses as to why not to do something. Let's Let's talk about that a little bit. How did you gather things up. Where did you get the idea to do this? You said you did some shorts and you're, you're going to put those together. Sure. Um, you know, where did you get the money? Uh, would, did you crowdfund? Would you crowdfund? What are the ups and downs of that? Let's hear it from you. You're out there in the trenches. You put together a feature and most of all, where is it going? Mm -hmm. Okay. And what do you hope to get out of this? Go ahead. So I, I, I had shot three films. One, um, <laughs> one was called um the hell was the name of it um there's something in the woods and what happened is that it was my first time working with a dp and i think unless you have money and you have a budget you have to be careful working with a dp um the three shorts that i made were kind of like hey like what resources do i have that i can utilize i mean it was that simple it was like 
oh, my parents have a log home, let's use that. My parents have a townhouse, let's use that. I have an apartment, let's use that. So the writing piece for me was a little in reverse. At this level, when you don't have an agent, a manager, you don't have an executive producer, you look at what you have and try to write something compelling around it, you know? Yeah, uh, oh I, yeah. I kind of went backwards. So the first film I had a DP, him and I almost killed each other, we didn't finish it. But what was the conflict? Was it a money thing? Was it a creative uh, difference thing? I'm not going to give his name. He was a very um, commanding kind of dude. Um, let's put it this way. Either I was going to direct that film or he was going to direct that film, but we weren't mm -hmm. going to direct it together. Yeah. And, you know, and so just for, and it was this little short movie. It wasn't the biggest deal, but I started to feel hijacked kind of. Um, and so it just... Uh, Films are funny like that. I mean, I think there's drama on any film set, even something that's like a nothing movie. There's always drama. There's always chaos somehow. But anyway, him and I didn't click, so we didn't finish it. But at least I had a trailer out of it. And so I show that in the beginning of Trick or Treat Picture Show. Uh, the other two shorts were made about two years apart. One is Return of the Slasher, which is, yep. you know, utilizing my um, kind of family's townhome. And then the other one was The Invader, um, which was my parents have a log home up there. And around the corner is this beat up old house that we know the owner. And he charged me something absurdly cheap, like 350 bucks for the whole three days or so. Um, and so I didn't have a budget. I, I still, you know, I just don't. I'm Nothing I've done. I didn't have a crew. The only thing I had was a sound guy. The entire thing was kind of me with a camera and a sound guy. And my actors weren't paid. And, you know, it was like, I'll handle transportation and lunch. And I'm going to shoot these films. And then eventually in a year or so, I'm going to compile it into an anthology feature. And that's how I sold it. And I said, you know, you'll be able to speak with some horror magazines. We'll certainly have some press generated from it. So I think that you have to be your own sales rep when you're making movies for nothing, meaning what's in it for the actor? Who's going to see it? And so now they have a film kind of on Amazon that they can watch and there's articles written about their performance. And in the beginning, that is the reward. And even for me, you know, it's like you spend money on stupid shit like peanut butter sandwiches for the crew and you don't have a pot to piss in, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's really it. I mean, I, there was no budget to answer your question. Um, and I will say this, it's called the trick or treat picture show for a reason. Some of it's a trick, some of it's a treat. Mm -hmm. What was the reaction, first of all, the non-professional reaction, and that is family, friends, the actors themselves, and then when you had it professionally reviewed, what was the reaction there? So it's been mixed. It's, you know, it's interesting. The podcasters and the reviewers have been really fair, and they always use the word, I enjoyed it. And that's all I wanted. I wanted to create a film that children from the 80s really enjoyed. I will say this, and I'd be full of shit if I didn't say this. I, I kind of got the idea for this after I watched, have you seen the WNUF Halloween special? No, I have not. I, so it's, 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 to me, it's brilliant. And it, and it got um, a little bit rocked because it was a lot of commercials, but it's a fake broadcast of kind of an old 80s TV show on Halloween night. And it was very much a video spoof but they really recreated an experience and i thought well it might be kind of cool to do that in a cinematic way with with like a serious text um so i wanted to create an old night at the movies conceptually 
and I, I should have explained this a little bit better, I think, when I first showed this to people. The idea is that you're watching a VHS recording, like a kid is going through his dad's old VHS records of 16 or 35 millimeter films, and he finds a VHS recording of an old drive-in picture show that had played one night on public access television years later. So it's like, it's this weird combination of, of different influences, but you know, um, people, the horror reviewers, like were really fair and they seem to genuinely enjoy it. I think that <laughs> the biggest challenge I've had that put me in a depression for a few days is now that it's on Amazon, like some random person in Idaho goes to watch <laughs> it and it's like, what the fuck is this? You know what I mean? Because they don't, and, and I interrupt the stories and I, you know, but that's, that's the whole idea. In creating this film for 80s kids, as, as you say, and I'm an 80s kid, the issue that it comes down to is what happens when the predominant number of, of your audience out there just doesn't fucking get it? Yeah. Okay. That, that they look at this and they go, well, this is stupid. I, I don't, it looks like shit. Mm -hmm. uh, boy, they didn't have any budget to do all of this. Uh, you can go back to a previous episode that I had on what I call film dysmorphia, where people expect a certain look now because of CGI and green screening. And if it doesn't meet that standard or that aesthetic where they think is normal, well, then it's shit. Yeah. So you have also succumbed, as all, all filmmakers do, to looking at those comments. Okay. And like you said, one one can spiral you into a tailspin of of depression and go, what am I doing? Maybe I better rethink all of this. Uh, I probably suck. You know, the whole thing that goes down. And and the last thing I'll say about that to let you continue with that is I remember when I made my first film, The Fields, mm. and uh, we got Oscar winner, Emmy, record Emmy Award winner, Cloris Leachman, and Tony Award winner, Cloris Leachman, to oh. play my grandmother in the film. And I'll never forget a comment. And, and that's the other thing. Let's make it clear right now. What you read on Amazon is not a review. It is simply a comment. Right. And unfortunately, in this day and age, we have people now who construe those bullshit comments for reviews, and they are not. So this comment on IMDb said, you know, the movie's slow, nothing happens, which fine, that's okay. But then when they said... And that old lady that they got, she can't act. And it's like, well, I think the the Academy might beg to differ with you. Yeah. And uh, all those Emmys sitting in her house somewhere might might be a signal that you're wrong. And, right. and that's what I'm saying, that people don't get it. And you do have a generation now that doesn't understand. Like your father said to you, well, that was kind of like the 70s Jason with Michael Myers. Right. You have a generation that doesn't know that there was a Friday the 13th in 1980. That there was a Halloween back in the late 1970s that John Carpenter made. Many construe Rob Zombie's remake as the original Halloween. Yeah. So they've they've forgotten. We have we have a generation, or even now two generations, that don't know. And here's the deadlier part: they don't want to know. Here you are. You make this film for 80s kids. You put it up on Amazon uh, with the intent to what you would, are saying is just for people to enjoy, and you get that group of assholes that don't enjoy it. So let's talk about that real quick. What, how have you dealt with that as a filmmaker? You put your heart and soul into this. 
you you worked your ass off on it. Like you said, I, I can imagine you cashed in a lot of favors. You got friends to do stuff for you. And then somebody just who doesn't even know what you've been through or probably doesn't even know how to make a movie at all and mm -hmm. probably doesn't know much about film dismisses it as this sucks. Go ahead. A really, I think a good filmmaker will be emotionally in touch with all audiences, like in a universal way. And you'll never make anyone, you'll never make everyone happy. Um, so far, I, I can't say it's been a bad reception. It's really been a mixed reception. Like, I find that it's either I really love it, which are people who got it right away, or I find it's like, 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 for example, one woman wrote, like, good production, but I don't know what I just watched. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. Like, <laughs> like I'll kind of take that. Like, okay. <laughs> I mean, all right, you can find something good about it. And then, you know, if you go and you look at what these people are reviewing otherwise, they're complaining about, like, nylon American flags and baked beans on Amazon. Well, it's not... So, you know, and then you'll go and look at other shit that they reviewed and they'll have given Clown Massacre 5, like, you know, 10 stars. And it was this like triumphant horror thing for them. So for me, then I'm like, well, I work so hard to make something cinematic. Like I'm, I'm really, 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 really a stickler with things um, aesthetically having the 35 millimeter magic to them. And I think, you know, between some, I think I definitely accomplished that somewhere between 16 and 35 for this. And so then you have this thing that's intentionally cinematic and then someone can go and rock your fucking movie, but go love a video about clowns. You know what I mean? That's like, like <laughs> yes, like pure schlock. And so, you know, you know, John Lennon said it. Um, he said the reason that most people hate something is because they don't understand what the artist intended, unless it's pure garbage. I mean, some movies are just not great. Um, that happens too. But you know what? I and, I and I don't say this, I really like my movie. Like if I made it for me and I can watch it and enjoy it, and it's not a traditional film, it's an experience. It's almost the kind of thing that, you know, you're, just, you're supposed to put on in the background at a Halloween party and then catch up with on Halloween night when it's raining and you want to light some candles and have some popcorn and like, like for me, when I watch it, it makes me feel like the kid it's, it's that movie is supposed to be a time machine. I learned a lesson though about story. Some people felt confused by some of the narratives and as a screenwriter, um, I've co-written two spec scripts where I really had the help of the seasoned screenwriter prior. And now, you know, those, the, anything that you see in the Trick or Treat Picture Show, I wrote alone. And so the one thing that I've without a doubt learned is I think there's a satisfaction that comes to the audience and a frustration that comes to the audience if they feel like your story didn't make sense to them somewhere along the way. Um, and because this was so much more of like a time machine 80s experience where I just wanted to make kids like me feel like a kid again, you know, maybe I could have focused on that a little bit more. But you know what? When you're running around with no money and it's just you and a camera, I feel like writing to those people, you fucking figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's I, I can totally understand that um, you want to you want to address every single one I I always remember an interview with Paul Newman where somebody said, you know, how, how can you go from like the color of money where they're, they they want to throw an Oscar at you 
and know that you also did When Time Ran Out, the Volcano movie, which is considered one of his worst movies. And his his response was very simple. And he said, I just don't read the reviews, which means for good yep. or bad. And yep. I've, I've learned that, especially now. Paul Newman didn't deal with the internet. I mean, back in, in his day, there were maybe a thousand movie reviewers in the country. Now there are a million. And, and I use reviewer very loosely because these are just people with a computer and an interface and they post whatever they want and most of them have no idea what they're talking about. But you said something so valuable when you go through Amazon or even IMDb for that matter, you're not reading reviews, you're reading um, satisfaction with a purchase testimonies. You know yeah. what I mean? You're, yeah. you're meaning did the person, and so if you, if you go into something thinking it's creep show and it's just different, um, but you know what, that's been the biggest reason that I, I think people haven't taken to it has been because of format. I've not had anyone say the movie sucks or the, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just been people feel jarred by being in the middle of a story and then an ad comes in. But listen, here in New York, and I don't know if you're familiar with them, a big inspiration for this movie was a place in Brooklyn called Nighthawk Cinema. I love Nighthawk cinema. And some of the ads you see in the film play at Nighthawk. And like, you'll be in the middle of a movie and then all of a sudden it'll be like, okay, like go take a piss, go have some popcorn. Like I miss that so much and wanted to recreate that. But people were very much like, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Like I was in the middle of that. I, I, I'll take that any day over your movie sucked. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and you make a great point with that. So you have it up on Amazon. It's on Prime Video. I think um, like three and, a half, at three and a half out of five right now, which is yeah. good. Uh, what's what's coming up next for you? What what are your plans? And um, you know, what how do you want to get to the next level? And and do you have a blueprint for that? It's so funny. I went, I'll tell you a story. I went um <laughs> I went to a film festival, right? And mm -hmm. When I got there, it was very far removed, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And when I got there, they were only going to play one of my shorts. And it was one of those things where they're going to play your shorts, but they're not going to play it till like one in the morning when everyone goes home. Um, and and I'm, you're all the way in like the middle of nowhere. And it was the, they had the cast there from Basket Case. And I'm not, this is not knocking anything or anyone, but it was, it was a very dark, isolated, yesteryear kind of thing that I left feeling like I, here's what that experience showed me. I think you have two paths as a filmmaker. And I think that you have two goals. I'm so tempted to write something and, and like contact horror stars of yesteryear and go on Twitter and crowdfund. And then I feel like that brings you to the, a slew of like horror conventions and straight to video releases, or do you effort to do something smarter to try to be a little bit more commercial um, and to try to work with a production company. And it's really my dream to produce Friday night popcorn movies for the domestic market. And I, I'm dying to work with Danielle Harris and Ellie Cornell and like people I grew up with. And like, I'm dying to do that. Here are these stars that we all love. 
here's a fresh idea that I'm going to make sort of vintage or, or at least filmic and cinematic, you know, can we raise a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars And then I say, but I have a bigger goal because sometimes when you use horrors, uh, horror stars from yesterday, it stays in a, in a very specific niche, you know, um, oh, yes. despite how much even I'm a fan of it or love it. And I really, really, really want to have a picture in the theater. Um, that's my goal. I have I have a spec script that I've been pitching for a few years and come close, pretty close to it. But being a nobody, it's very difficult. I don't have an agent. I don't have a manager. I don't have an attorney. I got to figure all that shit out. But that comes naturally as you evolve as a filmmaker. And that will happen when it's supposed to happen. Yes, but, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I have a spec script for a film that um, I genuinely believe to be a commercial hit. And other than that, I'm writing something else right now called um, Indian Summer, which is about um, a girl's parents dies and they, you know, she inherits their home on, on Fire Island, which is what we'll call Indian Island in the script. And this kind of vagrant hiding in a lighthouse um, comes after them, but with a lot of subtext and a lot of substance. Um, and, you know, I really want to focus on telling a good story after the critique of this one and telling a linear narrative. Um, you know, and then there's a part of me that wants to pick up my camera and go shoot like an alien film at my parents' log cabin, because I have it, but I don't know, like when do you stop shooting just to shoot so you have something to show, you know? Right, And, yes. and then, You know, and then at the same time, but you know, I spent two years in a Starbucks contacting production companies, reaching out to people in acquisitions. And, it was almost always no, but I know some pretty interesting people now that are willing to take a look at my shit when I produce something, whether it's a spec script or a film. And so I'll get there. I just don't know how at the moment. I don't know who it's going to be with and through. I need a really good executive producer, to be honest. But, you know, I, I've done as much as I can do individually with nothing. That's the idea, I think, for now. I think that is an excellent way to, to end this interview. You You just nailed what I think a, a lot of indie filmmakers out there feel. I think you you really expressed it in, in absolutely pristine terms of of what you're trying to do and accomplish. And I, I just am, I'm impressed. Thank you so much for that. That's just a great way to close this up. Thanks, man. No, I appreciate that. I, I loved being here. I could do this for days. I want to thank you for being on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Um, tell us where we can find the Trick or Treat Picture Show. And uh, and where, what are the plans for it in release other than Amazon uh, Home Video uh, Prime? So uh, please tell us where we can find this. So it's on Amazon Prime. You can find it on Amazon Prime in the U.S. and in the U.K. It's only available in those two countries. Um, I think for what it was, it's perfect. Amazon is such a great venue for filmmakers of our generation in this position. I mean, when before could you make a movie with no money? promote it, have 30 articles written about it and release it on your own, uh, you know, worldwide. So, right. in, you know, in that regard, I feel so grateful to kind of be on the map a little bit. And I think it takes time for a movie to grow. Um, and it, especially a, a little bit of a movie like this. So I'm not going to do much more with it. I mean, again, we don't have, I don't have a distributor for that. And, um, you know, it's also on Vimeo on demand, so you can catch it either on Amazon, on your Fire Stick, your Fire TV, or on Vimeo on demand. And, um, you know, I encourage people to reach out to me. Let me know what you think. If you loved it, message me. If you fucking hate it and you hate me, message me. Let me know. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, let's hope you don't get too many of the latter. <laughs> uh, you know what? Fuck them. I'm a New Yorker. I can. <laughs> Good for you. Um, and so well, you Anthony, can... thank you so much for being on Cinema. Thanks, man. I appreciate that a ton. It was great to be here. Thank you for having me. Head on over to iTunes and give me a like and review. And if you want to read my cinema blog, you'll find it at horrorfuel.com forward slash author forward slash Harrison.